Good, good morning. I was going to see how long I could sit here and just not say anything. I didn't make it very long. So good to see you guys this morning. Um, we are in a new book of the Bible. If you weren't here last week, we started 1 Samuel, which is way back in the Old Testament. And, and I find it funny. Uh, sometimes I'll talk to people that don't come to church here. And, and um, oftentimes I talk to people that don't come to church here. That makes it sound like I only talk to people who come to church here. <laughs> And uh, they'll say, you're, you're doing the Old Testament. That's wild. And I was like, well, I mean, you, you know, why, why is that wild? And they'll say, well, does, don't you think it's out of touch or that we've changed so much? And I'm like, well, no, not at all. If you go back and read the accounts of, of things that people did 3,000 years ago, we haven't really evolved much since then. Uh, we keep falling into the same mistakes, doing the same things and having the same temptations and struggles and and so one of the reasons why it's so important to go back and read, again, this particular book of the Bible, uh, written about 3,000 years ago, at least the events took place about 3,000 years ago, it's really fascinating to go back and read these from a very different time, a very different culture. And again, it's, it's the same struggles, it's the same problems, it's the same uh, pitfalls. And so if we can go back and read about these things, hopefully uh, we will learn to, to avoid these traps and to learn from not only the, the, the failures of the past, but we also learn from the wins, the victories of the past, and, and hopefully we'll emulate those things and do those things. If you weren't here last week, we started 1 Samuel, which is it's the ninth book of the Old Testament. We did a little bit of an intro, and we did chapter one, and we right off the bat meet a woman named Hannah, who is, is quite a fascinating woman, and we're going to see in chapter two just a little bit more how, how complex and deep and provocative this, this, woman, this, this woman is. And in, in chapter one, we're introduced to Hannah, who has a husband named Elkanah, who also has another wife. And we talked about that polygamy. That is not condoned in the Bible, but is very frequent in the Old Testament. And we kind of see the ramifications of, of this breaking of God's law when it comes to how marriage is supposed to be conducted. But what ends up happening is Hannah cannot have children. She is depressed by that. She is anxious about the future. She cries out to God, calls out to God and says, God, if you'll just give me a child, I will give this child back to you, literally. When, when the child is of age, when the when the child stops breastfeeding, I will give the child to the work of the ministry in the temple. That's what she, she says. And so she says, God, whatever, whatever you give me, I'll, I'll give back to you. God gives her a, a baby, a boy named Samuel. And true to her word, when the boy is three years old, her and her husband travel up to Shiloh where the temple is, and they, they proceed to give their child spiritually and literally to the priest, Eli, uh, to do the work of the Lord for the rest of his life. And so that's kind of where we ended chapter one. And again, the thesis of that is, is that we learn from this story, everything we get, every good and perfect gift is from God and everything God gives us, we are just, we're just borrowing for, for this lifetime. But we are to give that back to him during this lifetime. And the, the bigger principle of that is, and we learn from the Bible, that, that we have to be able to handle the small things. And I know life does not sound like a small thing because we're in it, but this is the temporary and in this temporary, if we can steward this temporary life well, we inherit eternity. We inherit everything in eternity. We become, the Bible says, co-heirs with Christ in eternity. But we have to make sure that we can handle the temporary before we can be given the eternal, right? That's kind of what this life is all about. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Man, in chapter two is very, very fascinating. People say, well, you know, why are you teaching the Old Testament? Just in chapter two, we have sex, we have thievery, we have death, we have all kinds of crazy stuff. Just in chapter two of, of 1 Samuel, it's, it's 
pretty fascinating. We begin with a prayer, which is good because we need that before we get into the death and destruction and all that stuff. It just kind of helps us a little bit, but a very fascinating chapter. And what we're going to see in chapter two is this. There is going to be this presentation in the second chapter of 1 Samuel um, about, about two different roads, two, drift, two different ways that we can travel, if you will. There is the path of self, of selfishness, of consumption, of lust, of greed. That's one path. And then we see the stark contrast to that path, which is the life of Samuel, someone who chooses to be in the presence of the Lord, the Bible says. And we're going to see this, this, this stark contrast between these two different ways of living, okay? And that's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna ask ourselves, are we living in stark contrast to the ways of the world? Listen, not in opposition to people, but in opposition to the principles of the world. We are not at war with people. We are at war with principles that are, that, that are, that are not of God. And we need to make sure that we're talking about that, okay? So you should have got a notes handout. Everything is in there. Um, very comprehensive notes. Everything will be on the screen. If you have uh, the Experience Community app, I don't know why you wouldn't have that. If you uh, have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. You got everything right there, Scripture and Notes. If you have one of these old school things right here, this is called a book. This one's called the Bible. If you have one of these, we're in the ninth book of the Old Testament, book of 1 Samuel, okay? All right, I'm gonna pray. We'll dive into this. I hope you find it interesting. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating chapter, okay? And uh, we'll pray and we'll get into it and you can enjoy the rest of your Sunday, all right? Father God, we love you. Lord, I just wanna tell you, thank you for everyone in this room. Lord, thank you, God, that, that all these people chose to, to make it a priority to, to be here today, to be in church. Lord, I pray that, that you bless all of us in this room, God, for, for coming and just reading your word and worshiping you and, and, and making you a priority in our day, God. We pray not only for our church, though, Father, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And Father, our prayer is that ultimately what we're doing right now, Lord, that it honors you, that it, that it blesses you, God, that it draws us closer to you, Lord. And, and, and we pray today as we talk about this, that our lives will, will be in contrast to the destructive ways of the world, Lord, to the destructive ways of things that, that are not of you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we end chapter one. Hannah and, and Elkanah are, are literally handing their three-year-old boy off to the priest. And before they leave, Hannah is going to say a prayer. Okay. And this is where we pick up. Beautiful prayer, by the way. Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. Remember this line right here. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows or the bows of the warriors are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, the afterlife, and raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and the Lord gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust 
and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with the noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of the faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person, this is important, for a person does not prevail by their own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. So if you were here last week, there's a prayer in chapter one from Hannah, but it is drastically different than this prayer. The prayer in chapter one is from a, a, a point of desperation, a point of the fear of the future, a point of depression, anxiety, and that's totally fine to, to, to call out to God in those times. This one though is very different. This is a prayer that if you read this, it's very much from, from a posture of confidence a posture of confidence in God, of thankfulness for God, of praise for God, the acknowledgement of God's power. That's what this prayer is from. So here's the thing, and we're gonna talk about this a couple of times this morning. When we pray, it is perfectly fine to bring our request to God. That is, that is perfectly fine. I think we should be very clear with our request to God. But I've, I personally think, and I think I have biblical evidence for this, that we should begin all prayers, not with our wants and needs, but with thankfulness and praise to God first. That's how our prayers should begin, with the focus on him first. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a second. So the first part of this prayer, Hannah talks about the God of strength, that God gives her strength. She's thankful for the strength. She says that he lifts up my horn. That, that's symbolic of, of her, her strength, her power, her abilities. She also says that no one is holy like the Lord. What that means is this. And we live in a world, just like they lived in a world, where we have idols. We have quick fixes. We have things if we will just take this or do this or you know, say something to this or sign up for that, that will fix us. And what Hannah is saying, there's only one who is able to give me the strength I need. There's only one that is holy. There is one, only one that has the ability to help me and to change me. And to stand in the presence of that holy God, we have to first admit that God is the only one that can help us. I can't help myself. You can't help me. We might be able to be supplements to that, but ultimately, the only way we are to be saved, changed, fixed, if you will, is by a holy creator. And she acknowledges that. He's the God of strength. He is also the God of justice. I talk about this a lot today. And Hannah gives us some really good examples of how God mediates over mankind and, and executes justice. And the point is extremely simple, that if we think we're way up here, if we think we're better than everyone else, we're the most important thing, if we walk in arrogance, if we walk in selfishness, God is really, really good at making sure that we are humbled. But if we walk in humility, if we walk in peace, if we walk with the love of God and others in our heart, God is also really good at exalting us, elevating us. This is why Jesus said things like, the first will be last and the last will be first. That if we intentionally put ourselves in a humble place, God exalts us, but the opposite is true as well. So Hannah focuses on examples of this, of God humbling people or exalting people. She talks about military power that sometimes governments and kings and powers get arrogant, but all those governments and kings and powers have, have fallen throughout history. 
Um, things like daily provision. Oh, I got, you know, I, we're wasteful and we, 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 we have too much of things. And she says, well, I mean, God can take that. God gives to, to the starving, but he also takes from those who, who don't appreciate all they have. Talks about economics, even talks about life and death. Basically what Hannah's saying is, is God has all of this. He is in control of all of this. And he will see uh, that people get what they truly deserve, that he holds the justice of all these things in his hands. And guys, quite honestly, that, that, this is a tough one for me. I'll get to that here in a second. But humans, that, that's us, at least, I mean, I hope all you guys are humans. The humans are given certain levels of, of authority to administer justice. If you're a parent, you administer a certain level of justice to your children. Teachers, pastors, police officers, judges, we, we, we administer a certain amount of justice, hopefully based on God's standard. But what we have to know is that justice ultimately is, uh, is not ours. The reason why I say that is I can be the best parent I can possibly be, but I'm still flawed. You can be literally a judge. We have, we have a judge that comes to church here and, and, and she can be the best judge she can possibly be, but she may not have all the facts. She may not know everything that has gone on because she's a finite human. So she may make a wrong judgment and someone might get off and, and, and things. But the difference with God is, is God sees all and weighs all and will eventually hold everyone accountable. And the reason why I say that's tough for some of us I don't know if anyone else in this room is like this. I have a little bit of that like justice warrior in me. I don't, I don't know if anyone else is honest enough to admit they do, they do too. Like when you're going through like, you know, like the, the, the Target shopping center thing and someone's walking across to, to TJ Maxx on their cell phone, but they're not really walking. They're just kind of like. And what I do is I get my car about four inches from those people which is, listen, which is wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> my wife slides down into the floorboard, grabs my leg. What are you doing? I was like, well, look, they're on their, they, they're on their phone. She goes, okay. And I'm like, well, someone needs to teach them a lesson. And my wife's like, it doesn't need to be you, Corey. And, and so I, I struggle with this. I want people to learn, right? Like justice. On a much bigger scale though, I don't know if anyone else does this as well. If you watch the news enough, if you see the world right now, you're like, man, a lot of people are getting away with some pretty bad evil right now. And not that we should take joy in people being punished, but we can take some rest and comfort in the fact that God's gonna deal with that evil. God's gonna take care of that evil. And in the meantime, we are called to live righteously and to make righteous, wise judgments. That's what we are called to do in the meantime. The other thing is she, she talks about the God of the future. The last part of Hannah's prayer focuses on how God takes care of her now and how God will take care of us in, in the life to come. And she knew, because she even says that we can't do it on our own strength. What a beautiful prayer, by the way. We can't do it on our own strength. She is acknowledging that, that we can't fix ourselves. It has to be something greater than us. We need a savior because our ways implode, because our, our, our thoughts are not deep enough. Our strength is not strong enough. We need something bigger than us. And then look at this little nugget at the end. She says, he will give power to his king and lift up his anointed. There's never been a king of Israel at this point, nor was there any talk of a king at this point. That's it. Who is she talking about? She's referring to the coming Messiah, the coming king of kings. And so we see a little glimpse, a little foreshadowing of Jesus way, way back in the book of 1 Samuel, okay? 
You're probably wondering why I have pictures of meat up there. I will explain. I, I actually put quite a bit of thought into these pictures, and you're probably doubting that right now. But after I read this section, you'll sit back and say, he is quite brilliant when he picks these pictures. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, the kettle, the cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. That's where the temple is. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I will take it by force. So the servant's sin was severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Remember that. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Let me pause there again. The ephod was like an apron and the high priest would wear this apron um, in the temple. Now, this was just a little boy, but he was already wearing an ephod, which was kind of showing that he was maturing in his faith. He was becoming wise at a young age, okay? Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she's given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Okay, from this section on out, what is happening in this chapter is we are, we are establishing this great contrast. Look at the beginning of the section I read and then just the next sentence. It says that Samuel served in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of a, of a priest, Eli. The next sentence or the next paragraph begins with Eli had wicked sons. Now, what was the root of their wickedness? We're gonna talk about two things they were doing that was very, very evil. But at the root of all the evil things they did, look at this, is they did not respect the Lord. I want you guys to hear this this morning. They knew who God was. They even knew all the rules that God wanted them to live by, but they had no fear of any consequences by living however they wanted to live. Everyone hears that, right? Everyone hears what I'm saying. We can live in the, in the good old Bible belt. We can know who Jesus is. We can even know what the Bible says. But if we live like those things don't have any bearing on our eternity, we are living in disrespect of God. Now we can put on our, we don't do this at this church. We can put on our Sunday best. We can go and we can talk the talk and we can have the bumper stickers on the car and we can walk around and talk Christianese to people, you know, and sound all high and mighty. We can do those things. But if we are not living out the principles and commands of the word of God, we are living in a dishonorable way towards God. 
This is why the prophet Isaiah said, listen, the people's lips are close to me, but their hearts are far away. We need to make sure that's not us, okay? Because there is a penalty for that, and we'll talk about that. Now, the root of their evil was they didn't respect God. One of the things that they were doing that was evil is they were both priests in the temple. They're pastors, similar to what my role is right now. So Hophni and Phinehas, who are both pastors in the temple, they were misusing their power and their, their, their authority in the temple. So in Leviticus chapter seven, it tells us that when people would bring their animal sacrifices to the temple, in order for the people who worked at the temple to live, they would get a portion of that meat to eat. And not a bad portion. They would get the breast of it. It's a pretty big piece of the meat. And they would get one of the thighs. So, so they, they weren't going hungry. They, were, they, had a, they had a good income, if you will. And listen, this is gonna sound weird coming from me, but the Bible says there's nothing wrong with people working in full-time vocational ministry. We have about, between all four of our, our campuses, we got about 75 full-time people and it is your sacrifice, your offering that, that puts food on our table that allows us to eat and have health insurance. And you guys do that and we're so grateful for that. Here's the thing, that is biblical, that, that the people who come to the church give and the people who work for the church live off a portion of that giving. But the Bible says in Leviticus that that portion needs to be reasonable. Do you understand what I'm saying right here? We haven't changed much, guys. There are corrupt ministers in the world today. And what happens is, is these guys, the, the fat was supposed to be burned off, which was all according to how they were to prepare the sacrifices. They were to get a certain portion of the sacrifice, but not all of it. They weren't supposed to be flying around in jets and wearing $2,000 Nikes and looking like clowns and you know, living in houses that you guys can't afford or driving cars that you guys can't afford. They're to be living at a, at, a, at a level at about what the congregation is living at. But instead they were taking it all for themselves. We've seen this, correct? And misappropriating it. And so this not only disregarded God's blatant commands, it disregarded the well-being of the people who were giving the sacrifices. This is wrong. So Leviticus 7 tells them how to do it. Leviticus 10, look at this says, if the ministers abuse their power, they deserve to die. Now, here's what a lot of people think about the Old Testament, and they're, they're wrong about this. They'll say, oh, so glad we have the New Testament. Jesus is a lot more chill than the Old Testament God. <laughs> Jesus is the Old Testament God. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus also talks about spiritual abuse. And he says, it would be better, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, it would be better that you tie a stone around your neck and jump into the sea than to mislead my lambs. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if you mislead people spiritually, it, it's gonna be very costly. So it sounds extreme, but it shows the seriousness that God places on people with spiritual authority. And it even says in the gospel of, or the book of James, not the gospel of James, the book of James, that people who have leadership are, are judged by a harsher standard. But just as you're sitting there maybe going, oh, good thing I'm not a pastor. Listen, if you're a parent in this room and you spiritually mislead your children, you're gonna have to answer for that too. If you spiritually mislead your coworkers, if you spiritually mislead your family members, we're all, we all have to have integrity when it comes to our spiritual authority. And I'll just throw this out there. It's impossible to have spiritual integrity if we don't know what the Bible says about how we are to live. It is impossible to have that, okay? So at the end of verse 17, 
Verse 17, so the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord. They treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Look what it says there. And then look what it says in verse 18. But Samuel served in the Lord's presence. Here is this contrast. Also notice this. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more in the next part of this and then in chapter three a little bit. It all, I'm not trying to be mean to any of you parents in here, but it all begins with the home. The, the thing was, is Hannah and Elkanah gave their child to be in the Lord's presence. They wanted their child to be in the Lord's presence. Eli, we're gonna find out here in a second, was negligent about calling out his kids until it was too late. And we noticed that God not only blessed Samuel, God blessed the whole household because the household had integrity. So we're gonna see that how we raise people, right, plays into all this. So let's go back to the stark contrast. And again, this is extremely simple. Today is going to be extremely simple. But the simplicity is very important. That if we choose, choose to live in the presence of God, we flourish. That means if we choose to be in a church community, if we choose to submit ourselves, Samuel was submitted to Eli, the priest. If we choose to submit ourselves to spiritual authority, if we choose to pray and learn the word of God, we flourish. If we're in the presence of the Lord. On the other hand, even if we know who God is and even though we know what's right and wrong, but we choose to live for ourselves, we gravitate towards evil and we do damage to ourselves and to a lot of people around us. And that's what this next part's gonna bring up. Now, bear with me. It's a lot, of, uh, a lot of reading. I'm not gonna break this up. I'm gonna read it all in one thing, but it's fascinating. All right, let me read this. Now, Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's sleeping with volunteers at the temple. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord had intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with other people. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests to offer sacrifices on the altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefathers all the Israelite food offerings. Why then do you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have, here's the key guys, you have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever, but now this is the Lord's declaration no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be disgraced. 
Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's family so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all the good in Israel and no one in your family will reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And he will say, please appoint to me some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. A lot going on here. First thing we notice, of course, is not only are they stealing from the people, these pastors, priests, are having sex with women who serve at the temple. So verse 25 is interesting. What, what the beginning, the first half of verse 25 means, he says, if, if, if someone sins against someone else or someone offends someone else, we can bring in a third party and we can fix this. We can mediate this. So, so you know, if, if, if I offend Jason, sitting on the front row, if, if I offend him, we can bring in another pastor, we can bring in someone, and between the three of us, we can, we can resolve that offense, okay? We should be able to do that. On the other hand, if I do something that offends God, if I sin against God, no man can mediate that. What do I mean by this? In our modern day, in modern Christianity in the United States, therapy has replaced repentance. Everybody good? This is coming from a guy who goes to a counselor. I think counselors are great. I said this a couple of weeks ago. But listen, if I go to my Christian counselor with an egregious sin that I, has committed, I have committed, a good Christian counselor will go, hey, look, I'm glad you confessed that to me. You need to repent to the Lord because that's the one that you sinned against. So if I do something, if I do something, and listen, that's, it's biblical to confess our faults one to another. That's in the Bible. But no human can resolve my sin against God. Only God can resolve my sin against God. I have to go to him and say, I am sorry for that. Please forgive me. And look, the beautiful thing is, is he will. And we escape the ramifications or the punishment of that sin, but we have to go directly to him. And so the other side of verse 25 is even more interesting. It says that Eli went to his sons and said, hey, you guys gotta stop doing this. It was probably too late in the game, right? They had already grown very accustomed to the sex and the, the, the materialism and all that stuff. And he goes, you guys gotta stop this. And it says that they would not listen to their father. Why? Because God already decided he was gonna kill the, the, the both of them. Now you can read that and be like, that's pretty intense. But here's the thing. They had lived... Please listen to this. They had lived in selfishness and sin so long, their antenna had gotten so clouded that they weren't even able to, to open their ears up to the truth at this point. This is also a New Testament thing, guys. Paul talks about this in Romans. Some of you old school KJV people in here, we called it a reprobate mind. Other translation call it a worthless mind that we live in darkness so long that we don't even have a desire to see the light anymore. 
That's where Eli's sons were. This is very similar to Pharaoh during the Exodus, right? God sends all these miraculous signs and Pharaoh just didn't get it because he didn't wanna get it. And what we learn in this physical example is we learn a spiritual truth. This is very important, that if we live our entire life unwilling to address the evil in our life and unwilling to repent of the evil in our life, we will all face spiritual death. We will all face eternal death. That's separation from God forever. So here it's literal. For us, it is spiritual, but the spiritual part's the worst part. And so what God does is he sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet. So a, a man, we have no idea what his name is. He walks up to Eli and he has some very, very bad news for Eli. The first thing he says is this, and I hope you guys hear this. The prophet walked up to Eli and said, Eli, you have been given freedom. You've been given a nation that is blessed by God. I hope you guys are hearing this. You've been given prosperity. You've been given provision. All of these wonderful tools so you can live a life that honors God. But what your family has done with their freedom and their prosperity is they have used it as a mean to get whatever they want to get. They've used it for their lust. You guys are picking up what I'm laying down here, right? You've used it for your violent ends. You've used it for your greed and your materialism. And you've become entitled. If you're not picking up what I'm laying down, this is the United States of America. And we as a nation, we as a people have forgotten our prosperity. We have forgotten our freedom. We've forgotten every, and there, I've said this a million times, but I'm gonna keep saying it until something changes, which I don't know if it's going to. There is no more vile nation on planet earth than the one you live in. Corey, how can you say that? And the majority of most places in the world, things like pornography is against the law. It's a $17 billion industry in this one. Certain sexual acts are, are against the law in most other countries. Certain ways of treating women are against, the, against all these kinds of things. But we, we celebrate these things. We, no one puts out the vile and filth that the United States does. Prove me wrong. No one does. So we have reached a similar place that Eli's sons have reached and Eli's family has reached. So you know what's interesting though? Listen, listen, I hope you guys hear this too. This is very important. Eli wasn't stealing from people. Eli wasn't having sex with women who volunteered at the church, but he never said anything about the ones who were. It was happening on his watch. It was happening in his home. That means that mom, dad, you may not be having sex with your boyfriend, but if your daughter is, and if you're allowing it and you're turning a blind eye to it, you are guilty by association. And there will be a penalty for that. I'm talking about from God. We will have to answer to that. I may not be the one despising the sacrifices of others. I may not be the one not honoring God's commands or, or, or putting myself above everyone else or getting rich off the backs of others. It may not be me directly doing it, but if it's happening in my sphere of authority and I turn a blind eye to it, guilty. I'm an accomplice to evil. So listen, that means that what happens in your home is important. That means even further than that, not just in our home. If you call yourself a Christian in here, guys, and I, I, I love everyone, I, I, I genuinely do, but we will get up here and we will talk about hard biblical truths, clear biblical truths that are counterculture. 
and everyone nods and yes, and they, they think it's great. And then I'll see you guys affirming things that the Bible blatantly says is not okay. And so if I close my eyes and just pretend like nothing bad is going on, I am complicit. I am part of the problem. If my friend is doing something that, that will eternally separate them from Jesus Christ forever, and if I never speak up, the Bible says to know what is right, but to do nothing is wrong. Now, of course we do that with love, but if you're dousing gasoline on you and you're flicking a lighter, and I just say nothing because I don't want to hurt your feelings or lose your friendship. Again, I hope you guys are, I hope we're like on the same frequency this morning. What, what are we, what are we tolerating within our, our sphere of influence? What, what, what are we honoring? What are we dishonoring? How are we serving? What are we serving? Because remember, ultimately there will be justice. So this man walks up to Eli and says, you have turned a blind eye to sin that was right under your nose. And then he says a very haunting word, therefore. Because you have turned a, a blind eye to sin, therefore these things are going to happen. Because God is not going to let it go on forever. And Eli's household was going to break down. His sons were going to die their descendants were, to, were going to lose their livelihood and they were gonna suffer untimely deaths. Now listen, I believe in this instance, these were, these were divine cases of God taking the lives of these evil people, right? Because they were hurting other people. Here's the principle with this though. If we live in defiance of God, God doesn't have to be the one to strike us down. This is a biblical principle. Jesus said, if we live by a sword, we will die by a sword. So if I choose to live in rebellion of God, right? Let's say I'm a, I don't know, 18 year old girl just out of high school and I start hanging out with a bunch of drug dealing like, like pieces of trash, right? I start hanging around violent people. I start hanging around people that don't value women. I start hanging around with people who are doing illegal things and things like that. When I'm in that environment, the likelihood of me dying at a young age is pretty high. It's not because God is striking me down. It's because I have placed myself in a position to where if I live by a sword, I will possibly, most likely be killed by a sword. You understand the metaphor, correct? So if we place ourselves in a position of sin, we open ourselves up to violent death, to losing our livelihoods, to being under the ramifications of that sin. And there's always ramifications for sin. And here's the thing, even if those ramifications uh, uh, um, affect you, they, they, they can also affect those around us. What do I mean by that? Let's say you're extremely promiscuous. You're let, let, not you. Let's say that I live a very promiscuous life. I have sex with everything that walks, right? If I do that enough, more than likely, I'm going, to, I'm going to acquire a sexually transmitted disease and one that may take my life. Now, let's say that I acquire a sexually transmitted disease that could eventually take my life because of my promiscuous lifestyle. I can go to God and say, God, I am so sorry. And you know what? Instantly, God says, I forgive you and we can be saved and we can be changed. You know what though? You're still gonna have that STD. There is a ramification for those actions. So if, if, if we raise our children around violence, if we raise our children around sexual immorality, if we raise our children around hatred, if people are raised in these environments, they're more likely to do those sins. And if they don't even do the sins, they are going to feel the effects of those sins. Now, the Old Testament briefly talks about generational curses. And sometimes we get a little squirrely with that, right? 
Well, my grandfather was a womanizer and my dad was a womanizer. That means, you know, that's why I've cheated on my wife all these times. We use it as an excuse. This is a generational curse. Listen, that's a bunch of bull crap. All we have to do is give our life to Christ, repent for the sin in our hearts, and that chain gets broken instantly. That's how we break that stuff. Because listen, I may feel the ramification of my father's mistakes, but I don't have to be my father. Anybody? I may feel feel the ramifications of the sins that were done in the generations before me, but I don't have to do those things. And listen, and my kids don't have to do those things. We can stop that line right now because ultimately we are responsible for our choices and we have access to freedom through God and we have access to the Holy Spirit. So here's this contrast again. After Eli, uh, here's some very, very awful news. In the place of Eli and his family, the prophet says God is going to raise up someone else. Maybe Samuel. And this individual is going to do what is in God's heart and do what is in God's mind. And then the very end of this chapter, Eli is assured, we are assured, that if we knowingly, that's an important word, guys, if we knowingly live in sin, if we knowingly live in greed and selfishness and abuse, we will be humbled. We will, and it will, it will affect people around us as well. We are assured of that at the end of this chapter. Let's go back to the happy part of this chapter, the first half. When Hannah was praying, she wrapped her prayer in praise and thanksgiving. That is acknowledging God's power, acknowledging God's goodness, thanking him for the things he's done. If we will start our prayers like that, that, that instantly focuses us in. It dials us in to the, to the path that we should be taking. It humbles us. It puts our thoughts on God and less about our desires and problems. Here, here's my thing. Do I think we should bring petitions to God? Yes, I think we should be clear about those things. I think if we focus, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, if we pray for 10 minutes, nine of it should be praise and thanksgiving. If we focus on the Lord and thank him and praise him for who he is, I believe there are times we don't even have to ask for things because God knows our heart and minds and he gives us the, the, the desires of our hearts because we are focusing on him. It's an ironic relationship with God. The more we focus on him, the more we are blessed. But that's what we are to do, focus on him first. So we teach people at the church, you don't have to pray like this. I just think biblically, I think it's, it's probably the most correct or effective way to pray. We teach this here. That when we pray, it's a, it's a good idea to open up with praise, thanksgiving. I haven't done this in a long time, but, but if, you, if you write stuff, if you're like a journal person or if you like to write things down, make a list. Write down 10 things you're thankful for and thank God and praise him for it. Then we should write down some sin in our life that we need to repent for. If there's no sin, praise God. But, but if there's anything wrong we've done, we ask God to forgive us because the Bible says that the prayers of righteous people are effective. So we need to make sure that we're living righteously and repented of sin. Then we pray for other people. And then the last thing we do is we pray for ourselves. If you'll write that out and pray that, you'll pray for 30 minutes and not even know you prayed for 30 minutes. But this is a good way to, to, to address the Lord. We also need to understand that if we will put God first in our lives, if we will put God first in our prayer time, we will have the strength we need to endure this life. Imagine a mother with her three-year-old toddler about to give this child away. That had to take a lot of strength. Now, again, we know that she goes back and sees him a couple of times a year. That has to be hard. Someone else is gonna raise your child here. 
She needed strength. God will give us the strength we need if we will just put him first, if we will just depend on him. We can't do it on our own strength. He will also give us wisdom. The Bible says that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it and he will give it to us in abundance. Every single one of us, every time we pray, I believe we need to ask for wisdom. God, give me wisdom. This world's crazy and we need discernment and we need wisdom. We must also know this, guys, that God is just. He is just. Again, I don't wanna take any kind of sick pleasure in this, but when I see some of the evil people in the world right now and at the end of Revelation, it says that these, these people who have, who, have, who have made their money off the backs of people who have abused and swindled, and it says that they will hide under rocks and cry out for death. I don't take any kind of sick pleasure in that, but I take a confidence that God sees it. I just have to be careful. Guys, if you, if, if, I'm not saying you should do this or, or not. It's quite depressing. If you get on YouTube, look up Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia. Just, just, just look that up on YouTube. Watch some footage of people walking down the streets of Kensington in Philadelphia. Look at young ladies, 17, 18, 19 years old, passed out on the street with, with, with needles in their arms. God knows what happened to them while they were passed out the night before. People strewn out, people defecating on the streets, all because, right, um, um, we've allowed this system, we've allowed sin to go unchecked. And, and in the name of loving other people, there are people making money off this kinds of situation. There are politicians who dress in Louis Vuitton and talk about how much they love the poor and impoverished. And that makes me angry, guys. But you know what? Even though it doesn't seem like these individuals get justice now, justice will come. Justice will come. And we have to rest in that, that these people who seem to get off the hook for their evil and their greed and their debauchery, God sees this. God sees this. In our personal lives, we just need to make sure that we are not tolerating evil. Christians sometimes believe they can have like a manageable sin. That's like saying I have a, uh, I don't know, I have a manageable terminal cancer. It's about the same equivalent. I love what Greg says. He says it's like uh, saying we're a little pregnant. That's what Greg always says. It's a good old man joke. But it's the same thing. When we say we have a manageable sin, listen, if you think you can somehow manage evil a little bit, compartmentalize that in your life, I guarantee you, because the Bible tells a million stories about it, eventually you will drown in it. Sin prohibits, inhibits a relationship with God. And when we don't have a relationship with God, we live in chaos. We drown, we get overwhelmed. Here's the other thing. Even if we are not the one directly committing the sin, we must not condone evil. We must not turn a blind eye to evil. Now look, we do it in love. We do that in love with our children. We do that in love with, with people around us. If someone comes up to you and they say, you know, to, or to me, Corey, do you believe this is a sin? I'll say, well, well, listen, I'm a Christian. I believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. Let me show you what God says about that question. And you know what that does? That takes all the pressure off me because I don't determine what is right and wrong. I'm a Christian that follows Christ. He determines what is right and wrong. So if I can go to the Bible and say, this is what the word says about that issue. We need to be learned of the word. We need to be loving, but we cannot turn a blind eye to evil. If we withhold or neglect the truth out of fear of being popular, we are accomplices to evil. Look at what it says in this chapter we read. The, the, the prophet goes up to Eli and says, because you valued your sons more than God, 
because we worried more about what people thought about us than we care about what God thinks about us, because we're more concerned with these and these, right? Than having integrity, there's a price for that. There's a price for that. There's always a price for sin. If we commit sin, there are just natural consequences. Even if God doesn't have to step in, there are natural ramifications to our sin. If we live in sin, it's going to not only affect us, it's going to affect people around us. And and those of us who grew up in in homes that weren't God-fearing, God-honoring situations, you understand that those things affect you and that we have a proclivity to certain kinds of sins because we've been exposed to those sins by other people. There, There are ramifications. The good news is though, that we don't have to live in that. Listen, even if you were, and I'm not trying to be insensitive, even if you were sexually abused, that doesn't mean that you have to be an abuser. Even if you grew up in a household of drug addiction, that doesn't mean you have to be an addict. If you grew up in a house of, of sexual immorality, you don't have to live sexually immoral. The Holy Spirit is bigger than that. The Holy Spirit is greater, can break those chains, but we have to truly repent. And repent is not just saying, I'm sorry, and then doing it again. Repent, repent, true repentance means we identify the sin, we ask God to forgive us, and then we get the heck away from that sin. We move away from it. We learn to hate it, right? And we do all we can to move away from it. And when we do that, we live in contrast, listen, to the broken principles of the world. We are not in opposition of people. You're not at war with people, guys. You're at war with principles. Do you hear me? You're not at war with people. You're at war with a system that the world has that is anti-God. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we are to be peculiar people. That doesn't mean we all go live on a farm and make our own clothes in a commune. That's not what that means. If you do that... Do whatever you want to do. Um, But it doesn't mean that we're weirdos. That's not what it means there. It doesn't mean that we walk around, you know, all of us wearing shirts, you know, big crosses on it. And again, if you do that, that's fine. But what the Bible is referring to is the way we live is to be dramatically different than the principles of the world. That means how we think. That means how we talk. That means how we treat other people. That means what, listen, what we value should be different than what the world values. That we we value the scripture, that we live out the scripture, that we we care and want to not only know the principles of God, but live and and act out the principles of God. Why? Because anyone with, 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 listen, anyone who has a desire to see the truth, anyone who has a desire to hear the truth can easily see that the principles of the world are not working. I say this all the time. If you don't YouTube Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia, just YouTube San Francisco, YouTube New York, YouTube Phoenix, Arizona. Heck, have you not even seen things start to fall apart even even in this neck of the woods? Have you not seen the aggression? Have you not seen the the increase of people who don't live in homes? Have you seen the increase of crime? Are we not seeing it? And the further we move away from the teachings of the Lord and the more we gravitate towards the teachings of man, the more chaos 
that ensues because never in the history of humanity has living for self worked. Nowhere in the history of humanity has selfishness produced the results that we've wanted. Anyone can see that if they want to see it. But we're pretty good about sticking our heads in the sand, aren't we? So what are we to do? Listen, I'm gonna give you a couple of points and then we're done. This is the last slide. The first thing is, is we have to choose. We have to choose to not make life all about just us. That means every single time that Burger King commercial comes on, you lean over to your kids and go, it's not all about your way, right? <laughs> that means every single time that song comes on in that Disney movie about following your heart, you go, hey, you know, following your heart's actually gonna lead to bad stuff, right? That we point these things out. I'm not anti-BK or Disney movies. I'm just saying, right? All throughout society, we are pummeled with the message of you do you. Your truth is yours. Live the way you wanna live, Right? Do it the way you want to do it. And then you have Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia. Then you have Skid Row in Los Angeles. Then you have a, 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 an ever-decreasing middle class and you have the ultra-rich and the people that can't afford to pay rent. You have depression, you have suicide, you have violence, you have murder, you have domestic abuse. And it keeps going and going and going. We have more depression than we've ever had more anxiety than we've ever had. We're more medicated than we've ever been. Go on and on and on and on and on. I was watching a documentary the other day about, uh, about the, the, the Norwegian countries. Those are considered the happiest places on earth. Disneyland is not the happiest place on earth. According to this study, it is Finland, right? Those areas are the happiest place on earth. And they were talking to a man who is an anthropologist and a philosopher in Finland. And he said, well, why do you think people are so happy here? And he said something really interesting. They're not Christians there. It's not a Christian nation. But he says, we have chosen to not make life all about ourselves. A couple of people over here who get it. <laughs> but it's interesting to me from, an, from, from a man who's more than likely an atheist philosopher. And he says, there is value in choosing to not make life all about you. That's a biblical principle. The religious leaders walked up to Jesus and said, what's the most important law in the word of God? Jesus said, well, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he says, but there's a second one. And Jesus says, it's very similar to the first one. Treat others the way you wanna be treated. Put others first, right? God first, others above yourself. We have to choose to do that. We also have to make sure that our hearts and minds are guarded from evil. Jesus said that what we take in through the eyes contaminates the entire soul. <laughs> that means that what you watch matters. It means that what you feed your brain matters. It means that what you read matters, what you listen to matters. Now listen, I'm not a prude. I listen to the Ramones with my kids on the way to school in the morning. I'm not a prude. I know how to live, right? I don't know if there's any other Ramones fans in here. But the thing is, is we have to be guarded about what we are allowing to speak into us. We have to be guarded, man. Listen, I'm not trying to get all up in your, you know, how you raise your kids. If you raise your kids, allowing them to watch movies about like demonic possession and paranormal, blah, blah, blah. You're opening up your home to all kinds of crazy spiritual crap, man. If you're letting your kids watch hypersexualized things. And again, I'm not a prude. We, we watch lots of secular movies, and, but we even use those sometimes as opportunities to be like, kids, you don't do that, Right? 
You don't talk like that. You don't make decisions like that. And step into that. But this whole like free range parenting thing that has somehow taken root is foolish. And it's leading kids to destruction. We have to guard, not only ourselves, we have to guard what happens within our sphere of influence. Guard our hearts and minds from evil. Simply put, we need to pray. If you're gonna live in contrast to the systems of the world, you have to know the systems of God. That comes through reading the word, that comes through talking to him, praying to him. That takes setting aside time to be still, David says, and just know that he's God. That's meditation. And I don't mean meditation in an Eastern philosophical way of meditating. I mean, listen, this would be really, really good for all of us. If we would intentionally take more time to leave the phone in the house, life will still go on, I promise. Leave the phone in the house, go outside and just look at some trees that God made. Listen to some birds that God made. Just think on him a little bit. Go out tonight if the sky is clear enough and look at the stars and be like, man, those are huge balls of fire that God's spoken to existence. And just meditate on him a little bit. Think on him a little bit. Maybe this is why the Bible says that we are to take thoughts captive, right? To capture those thoughts, allow God to get control of our minds a little bit and just listen to him. And then not only should we pray and read the word of God, we must simply do what the word tells us to do. If the word says something is wrong, don't do it. If the word says something is right, do it. And learn to listen to the spirit. Learn to pray for God to give us wisdom and discernment. The ability to understand this. I'm on the, I'm on the right track here. No, 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 I'm not on the right track here. That God will speak to us. Not in the way I'm speaking to you now, but God speaks in that still small voice. The problem is, is that we just haven't learned to listen to him. We haven't even set aside the time to listen to him. We gotta do that. And we live in contrast to the world around us. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I've gone too long. If you are in this room and, and maybe you are not a believer, but you have some questions, up here on my right, your left, you have Pastor Mike. Any questions you may have, Mike will do his best to answer those and, you, and you're welcome to ask anything you wanna ask. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything at all. The last thing is all the way around this room and please be respectful in this room if, if people are taking communion around you. All the way around this room, wherever there's a lamp on a table, there is bread and wine. This symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to go get that. They're on most of these pillars in the center of the room too, there's disposable communion. Everyone is welcome to take that you can get that, go back to your seat, pray by yourself or with your family, take communion, as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, okay? Let me pray for us real fast. God, I love you. I thank you for everyone in this room, Lord. I pray that as we go back out into a very dark world, I pray that we can be the light. I pray that we can be the contrast. Lord, we're not against people, we're for people, but we are against the principles that are destroying people. And I pray that we can be the light, God, for ourselves, the light for those around us, Lord, that you can radiate through us, God, that we can, we can share the truth, we can share true biblical love, that we can honor you in how we live, God, and, and, and we will be blessed. Our families will be blessed. Our neighbors will be blessed if we will just submit to you, God. We love you. We thank you. Keep your hand on everyone in this room until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.